Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest, Herbie Newell. Thanks for being here, Herbie. Thanks for having me. It's a blessing to be here and to, to discuss this important topic. Okay, so you use the word blessing, Herbie, and in my experience, uh, secular people don't use that term. I don't know why. It's a great term in English, but people don't avail themselves of these wonderful English words. So <laughs> does that uh, give us an insight on where you come, where you're coming from? As far as your worldview, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so my worldview is definitely uh, based in God's Word, a biblical worldview. Uh, every blessing, uh, every encounter that we have is a gift of God, um, and uh, every life is a gift of God. Every person is a gift of God, and even someone that I disagree with or uh, that you know may have a different opinion of, they're still made in the image of God, and so we want to treat them with respect and know that each and every interaction is a, is a blessing. So certainly that is rooted in, you know, a, a very distinctively Christian, but also biblically worldview. Awesome. So Herbie, uh, tell us about what you're up to the past year and a little bit about your background. Uh, we, we both, let me set you up for this, a, a very famous or infamous Supreme Court decision was overturned last year, Roe versus Wade. Gosh, it was 1973 to 2022. So that's exactly 50 years um, that it was mm. on the books, wreaking havoc through our country. And now it's thankfully overturned. Um, so how does that impact what you do? And Maybe that would be a good way to tell us about what you do. And Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the last year for what we do has what I have described been a, you know, beautifully messy and difficult year. So beautiful on the standpoint that uh, now states have the ability to restrict uh, or I live in the state of Alabama to completely, uh, you know, repeal uh, uh you know, abortion. And so I live in a state where there's no abortion. Um, I'm neighbored by states where there are restrictions upon abortions. And so while that decision didn't render abortion completely unlawful around our country, it certainly set in, you know, no matter what your worldview is, I think very safe restrictions upon uh, an abortion. And again, for people that might even disagree on when life begins, I think we can hopefully all agree that when there's a heartbeat, when when there is pain that's able to be felt uh, by a baby in the womb, that that life needs to be protected. And for 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 me, I, I have the opportunity to lead Lifeline Children's Services. We are an evangelical orphan care, adoption, and foster care ministry. And we certainly have seen an influx of young women seeking our services. You know, one mm -hmm. of the many services that we have are maternity services, and so while we have adoption or name, it's always been a big belief that we need to minister holistically to women who are walking through unexpected or, or crisis pregnancies. We want to give them the, the hope that by choosing life, there are lots of opportunities for them. There are opportunities for them to parent. There's opportunities to get them support to help them be able to get on the right footing to parent. Uh, there And there are opportunities for them to, to look at marriage and explore marriage if that's an option. But then fourth, 
uh, it would be adoption to look at the opportunity for uh, placing their child in a home that they choose and a home that's going to raise that child and give that child every potential opportunity. And so certainly we've seen an increase in those women that are seeking our services. Uh, we have seen, I think what's encouraging is not just women from red states, but women from blue states as well. Really? Wow. Are, are seeking and saying, hey, I, I want to explore what the options are outside of, of abortion. And so, you know, I think while abortion never left the public sphere over the 49 and a half years that Roe was was in 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 uh there, I, mm-hmm. I think certainly the Dobbs decision has put it back forefront and not just in our political discourse, but a hundred percent it's put it forefront in the mind of those women who would have been seeking after uh having an abortion. I think the other interesting thing that is both discouraging and encouraging in the last year, discouraging that you know, the current administration tried to put executive orders for the abortion pill to be over the counter uh, at CVS and Walgreens and your local drugstore. However, I think it's been very encouraging because I've seen a pro-life movement that says we're against that. And not just because it's an abortive fashion, we're against that because it's unsafe for a woman to go in and outside of the doctor's uh, purview to, to take a medication that's going to alter her hormones and alter the cycle that's normal in her body. And so uh, I have seen the over the last year, what I would say is tremendous growth, tremendous depth, um, and tremendous action by by Americans that, that would call themselves pro-life. Wow. Can you give an example of somebody from a blue state that has sought you out for different yeah, way for of sure. looking well, at things? Yeah. Um, I know it's confidential, but can you tell us a story that's confidential without giving, without giving names or or just social, social security numbers would be fine (laughs) without giving out too much (laughs) uh, or biographical information. I will tell you, uh, and since your background, there's the golden gate bridge. We actually did get a call from a young woman from California in particular, I think about, and while in California, you know, Abortion is, is is extremely readily available. In some ways, you could argue more readily available than it was post or pre Dobbs. Uh, we we've had not just one, but but I can think of one particular woman that called and said, you know, I don't even know if I can have an abortion in California, which of course brought a conflict of belief because we don't want to be dishonest, but we also don't want uh, to lead someone down a destructive path. But but we said, well, I mean, there each state is different, you know, and if and you certainly should look at the laws of your state. Um, however, we'd love to talk to you about the the life options. And so we had a counselor that actually went and visited with this woman face to face, walked her through her pregnancy. Uh, her call came last summer, and this this young woman gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. And wow. while she didn't end up choosing adoption per se, she did choose uh, an option that would give her an opportunity to get on her feet. And just a couple of, of weeks ago, she was able to, to get her child um, to, to, to move into a new residence. She started a new job and, and, and her path is on, is on a, on a good path. There's a good trajectory Um, as a organization. And especially as a ministry, we were able to connect her to a church that wouldn't just help her physically, but would also walk with her mentally and emotionally and spiritually and so just was from a she, call she, of a girl, she was a Christian. She was not a believer. No, she was not a believer. But um, with all the news 
spinning around about um, abortion on her social media feeds. She honestly didn't know if she could get an abortion in California. Uh, again, this was last summer, so this was yeah. well on the hills of the Dobbs, de- right on the hills of the Dobbs decision, yeah. and um, she's still not a believer. Um, but so she just person. she just looked you up online or whatever, and then she found did. You. She found us online through wow. um, online online services. Thanks, Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, she chose life. Um, wow, that's awesome. She's in a church. You know, I mean, our prayer and hope would be she would believe what we believe, but yeah, but there were no strings attached by this church. You know, they, what, they brought her in with open arms and said, we want to minister to you and we want to love you. And then we want to, by extension, love your child as well. What was the, uh, na- what's the name of your organization again? It's Lifeline Children's Services. Okay, cool. And it's adoption. What, what are the services again? Adoption. Yeah. So we, we do orphan care, adoption and foster care. Wow. Foster care. Um, let's, can we talk about foster care for a bit? Yeah, please. That seems to be, uh, man, I, I just can't wrap my mind around the foster care situation in this country. What are we looking at in foster care? What, what's the, what, what, what give us an idea of this, the type of challenge that we have as a country with foster care. Yeah, so you know, currently we have about four hundred fifty thousand kids that uh, reside in U.S. foster care. Uh, now that does not include the kids that have an open case with their local child protective services or parents that have open cases. That's just kids that have been removed from parental care uh, in our country. I think the the cold hard reality is that especially many of our larger metro areas around the country have lists of children that they need to pick up, but they're understaffed, uh, they're 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 under collateralized, and so they don't have the ability to go and and to uh, pick children up that are in hard situations, situations of neglect, potentially abuse. Uh, so you literally have social workers in, in most of our large metro areas that are having to make judgment calls every day about which cases are the worst, which cases are the hardest. Um, so on one, one hand, we have a growing population, and, and I would say ideologically, uh, I would tell you a lot of the reason that, that that's growing is we've seen a, a, a breakdown of the nuclear home. We've seen a breakdown of the nuclear family. Um, we've seen a redefinition of family and a redefinition of you know what I believe is it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and and we're we're reaping the consequences when our children don't have safe places to call home and are having to be removed from their biological birth family. So you 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 see it coming in. The other hard cold reality that really is the face of U.S. foster care today is you equally see kids that are aging out and these are kids that came into the foster care system. They weren't able to be reunified with their birth family. They didn't have any extended family that would bring them in, and they weren't able to find an adoptive resource. And you have thousands of kids that are are aging out of services. And, uh, you know, with Pell Grants and, and all types of things we like to talk about that are trying to help our foster care system, the truth is they're undereducated, um, they, they've been under-resourced, and, and they're grossly uh, not ready for life outside the foster care system. And so today, uh, we believe um, 
and I say we believe because the stats are always a little bit behind. The best stats we have right now are, are going to be from about 2019, 2020. And at that time of the kids that resided in U.S. foster care, uh, almost 70 percent of those kids had parents that had also spent time in U.S. foster care. And so what we see in our foster care system is a cyclical system of the kids that age out of foster care today are the ones that will repopulate foster care tomorrow. And as a as a nation and as a people, and I would believe from, from my worldview as a church, as Christians, we desperately need to reach into our foster care system by providing safe, uh, you know, uh, longstanding foster homes. We need to look at permanence. We need to be adopting kids. It might be harder to adopt out of foster care. And we need to be wrapping around that birth mother. So even as we started with abortion, you know, a lot of times the pro-abortionist will say, well, if you eliminate abortion, you're just going to have more kids in foster care. And the cold hard reality is this for Christians and for pro-life people and for conservative people, that's not untrue. So not only do we need to advocate for laws that protect life in the womb, but we also must, with our hands and our feet and our pocketbook and our time, advocate for women who are going through crisis pregnancies. We must advocate for kids in foster care. We must show that we're not just pro-life by the way we vote on abortion, but we're pro-life on how we act on the other side of the postpartum ward when that woman now has that baby that's no longer in her womb and they need just as much support or more support now that there are two mouths to feed than they did when she was pregnant. And so that's the that's the story of our foster care system. Uh, we need more foster parents. We need more opportunities to rehab families so that they can reunify with their kids. And we need to help these kids that are aging out in massive ways. Wow. What's the the age to age out? So it depends uh, it, state to state. So every state program, but the average uh, is, is going to be about 19 to when you age out. Now, if a child does get a Pell Grant, uh, so they're able to do some post-secondary education or some uh, some any type of junior college or, or, or um, you know studies, undergraduate studies. Mm-hmm. They can go and receive services as long as, uh, again, state to state, uh, the longest I've heard is 25. So some can stay in the system where they're being provided for until 25. Uh, the majority are going to age out before their 20th birthday. Hmm. Wow. That's quite a challenge, um, and I'm sure you just scratched the surface of this. Do you? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this whole thing? Why, uh, as my students might say, why do you care? You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Were you, you know, just born caring? Is it just something your mom yeah. put in the cereal, or? Well, I will <laughs> say this. Uh, I, I do remember uh, in middle school, one of my dear friends his mom ran the crisis pregnancy center in our town. And uh, well, I probably didn't have a real cognitive understanding of what that exactly meant. I at least understood that she was helping women choose life and seeing that there were other options for, for them and their children. Interestingly enough, uh, I met my wife in college and, you know, a lot of people aren't, you know, going to, to, you know, post-secondary education and saying, well, I want to, I want to be a, a director of a crisis pregnancy center. But my wife, when I met her, she said, well, my dream when I graduate is to run a crisis pregnancy center. And 
she did. She was the assistant director when we got married of a crisis pregnancy center um, in our hometown. And what would end up happening, and, and I cared, but I think the depth of my care grew as she would come home at night. And again, like I did with a girl in California, tell me stories uh, about women and, and what they were going through and, and the clients that she had seen. She didn't share their names or any demographics, but she just, she told me about their stories. And, you know, the Lord began to break my heart for the things that broke his. Uh, we began to pray on behalf of of these young women and and the children in their womb. We, we began to ask the Lord, what do we do? Uh, if, if I'm honest, I, I mean, there was a conflict of belief a little bit. Like, um, you know, we believe we're pro-life, but but look at this situation. Look at how sad some of these situations are. I mean, women who had been, you know, sexually abused uh, and were continually, even even when she saw them, were in abusive relationships. Uh, women that, uh, out of out of absolute deject poverty and a dejection, had sold themselves into prostitution. Uh, I, stories after stories that would just break your heart, and and we begin to just to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, what do we do? Like, if we're really pro-life and we really want these women to choose life, we've got a grave responsibility once they do. Like, what are we going to do once some of these women do choose life? Uh, how are we going to protect them? How are we going to protect their children? And and through that, the Lord just really started to warm our heart to the idea of, of of ministry to foster children, ministry to women who uh, are going through crisis pregnancies that was more than just confirming a pregnancy and was more than just encouraging them to do lot to choose life, but a ministry that said, hey, let's walk alongside of this woman. Let's help her let's help her explore those life options and let's help her ultimately make the best choice for her and her child. And then to adoption, realizing that not only was adoption a, a beautiful alternative for permanence for a child, not only was adoption a, uh, a reconciliatory act physically, but it also was such a beautiful picture for my wife and I of the spiritual adoption that we receive in Christ Jesus. That, um, that, that even throughout the, the Bible, for those who haven't read, uh, if you go to Romans chapter eight, it talks about that if you believe in Christ, that you've been adopted into the family of God. And it, it goes through that we're no longer slaves, but sons, no longer strangers, but now heirs of God. And so that whole picture of adoption as redemption, as restoration, as second chance, um, also looking at the Old Testament, and there's a story in the Old Testament where two women come to King Solomon and Solomon was asked by the Lord, you know, I'll give you whatever you want. He asked for wisdom. So Solomon being, you know, as the Bible would say, one of the wisest people that ever lived. Uh, two women come to him in the middle of the night. Uh, one woman's baby had passed away and she switched her baby with another woman. And they're coming before King Solomon. And it says King Solomon, his wisdom, looked at the women and he said, well, I'll split this living child in half and I'll give each of you half. And the scripture says that instantly the mother whose child it really was, says, by no means split this child and kill this child, but give it to this woman. And that sacrificial love of a mother to say, if I can't take care of my child, I would rather them live with another who can take care of them than bringing harm to them. And that's the picture of adoption. A mom that's saying, I can't provide for my child, but I don't want to split them. I don't, I don't want to take them out. Um, I, I don't want to hurt them. I want to place them in a, in, a, in a loving, safe, nurturing home. And so, you know, just through the prayer, God began to prick our hearts and Lifeline Children Services 
by God's grace, was looking for uh, a, an executive director at the time. Um, you know, most people find it funny. I, I was actually a CPA uh, doing financial audits and financial consulting. And so I like to say I went from uh, a pocket protector to children's advocacy. So um, it, it was a it was a it was certainly was a, a strong career change, but it was one that I can say after 20 years that that I haven't regretted uh, being able to advocate for women and children. What did where did you go to college and what did you major in? I went to Sanford University. Uh, it's in Birmingham, Alabama. It is a uh, Baptist liberal arts school. I, uh, I got an accounting undergrad and then I got an MBA with a concentration in accounting um, from Sanford and then went straight into working for uh, an accounting firm here yeah. locally for about four years. Wow. What'd your wife major in? She majored in human development and child studies. So again, 100% tunnel focused on I'm going to run a crisis pregnancy center to help women who are going wow. through crisis pregnancies. Um, in her small town in South Georgia, she had three friends who their senior year went through unexpected crisis pregnancies and mm. had counseled them through that. And wow. the Lord just pricked her heart to say, how many women don't have a friend that will walk with them through their pregnancy? And she yeah. knew she that for other women. Oh my gosh. This is huge. This is huge, man. Pregnancy is such a scary thing for, for folks. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine facing that. I can't imagine, but I'm of the, the old, you know, I'm a dinosaur now because I believe that men can't get pregnant. <laughs> I, I just, one of those things where you can't believe we're having this conversation at this point. Um, how did, how did uh, your agency get started? How long has it been around and all that? Yeah, so Lifeline was started in 1981, and we, interestingly enough, grew out of the Crisis Pregnancy Center network. Um, our founder saw the crisis pregnancy centers that were starting to pop up in the late 70s, early 80s. That's when that, that kind of core crisis pregnancy, CPC, unexpected pregnancy organizations started coming together. Mm -hmm. And and he went to one of the local crisis pregnancy centers and he said, you know, y'all may be helping them choose life, but who's walking them through their pregnancy? Who's who's discipling them? That was actually the word he used. Who's discipling them mm -hmm. in the way that they should go? And yeah. uh, so we started as a ministry that was here to disciple women through their pregnancy, e even to where you said pregnancy is a scary thing. We started as an organization that said, hey, we're going to walk these women through their pregnancy. We're going to help them, help them with their options. We're going to help them look at what's ahead of them. We're, if, if parenting is what the desire of their heart is and it's, it's, it's what's best for them and their child, let's help them do that successfully. And then over time, uh, the, the ministry grew internationally. We're working in over, over 18 nations uh, with orphan care and adoption programs. Uh, certainly with foster care, grew in family reconciliation. We have a, a full program that uh, works with families that have lost their kids in the foster care system that takes them through a parenting mentor journey, helps them get on their feet, uh, get helps them get some life skills and some job skills that put them in a receiving place to get their children back and to actually thrive. 
So all of those ministries, though, were all birthed out of this journey of how do we defend life? How do we live out life by by helping this woman? And how do we really angle to make sure that that we're 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 protecting life in and outside of the womb? How long have you been in this current role then? So I. Uh, yeah, I actually started in my role as executive director 20 years ago this May. So uh, in 2000, May 2003, I stepped out of the public accounting world and consulting world and into the child welfare world. Wow. So you've been doing this a while. For, I have. for those who don't know about adoption, <clears throat> how much does it cost and how long does the process take? Yeah, like so, say somebody's listening to this right now and they they feel that that right. leading. What are they facing? Yeah, realist realistically. Yeah, so realistically, um, again, I, I'm not speaking for our organization. Uh, we tend to be on the uh, the the lower side. Actually, we are on the lower side. So domestic adoption, if you're going the agency route, working with an organization that's licensed by the state. Um, you know, you're typically is that you at, or is that that's, that's yeah, we're that's licensed us? by the state. So okay. you're looking. How, how many routes are there? Uh, so there's I don't private. Know. There's private where you get you like you're matched. You maybe you know someone in your community who is pregnant, and you go get an attorney, and that attorney walks you through. There's facilitated, which is a private individual who is basically I hate to say it, matchmaking. So here's a family that wants to adopt. Here's a woman that wants to place. We're matchmaking. We put you with an attorney. Uh, then there's agency adoption. And so that's organizations that are all nonprofit who have to go through the rigors of getting licensed by the state, but they're full service. So they are helping women with social services. They're helping family with social services. They're doing all the legal work, all the help to make sure the legal process. And then I guess really fourth domestically, you also are looking foster to adopt. And that's going to be straight from the government. So local child welfare um, as a governmental entity. So adoption from foster care, I'll start there. Uh, okay. It's the least expensive. It costs zero. So the the county is not going to charge a family anything to adopt a child out of foster care. Typically, the reason a lot of people don't go that route is because it isn't quick. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll end up fostering uh, sometimes you can have a child in your home for up to three years and you don't know if they're going to be able to be adopted. They could be returned to their biological family. So there's some risk. The time frame is a lot less determined. Mm-hmm. There is adoption of teenagers from the foster care system. That is a quicker process. It's also, um, it, it, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, however, a lot of folks are reticent to adopt older children because of, of yeah. obviously more more runway and more story. Uh, before they came into the home, right? The yeah. the agency. So this is licensed child placing agency with the state. I would say you'd see a low. Again, this is on domestic domestic adoption. A low of about twenty. Uh, I'd say now twenty two thousand with inflation. We've seen some of that low end go up with some of the inflationary costs, all the way up to I'd say a high of about thirty four thirty five. You know that sounds like a lot, and you're saying, and you may say, well, that's the low end. A lot of that's low end is because a lot of this is regulated. So, for instance, I have to have my fees approved by the state every year. I have to show that that these are not just uh, profitable fees, but that these are true fees that are going to pay for the facilities of facilitating, of, of arranging 
uh, and helping moms and, and helping families. Private adoption. So that's where you go get an attorney. Maybe you've matched up. It's going to be anywhere in that, I'd say, high 20s to, to 60,000. So I know that's a huge range, but it just depends where you live. Uh, it depends on what the attorney is going to charge. Uh, sometimes you, 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 families choose to pay more because some of the, the, the more expensive attorneys have done more adoptions. It is a very complex legal situation when you're doing it privately in the private adoption realm with an attorney. It can go from, I'd say, 28 to, to the low 50s, early 60s. Facilitated adoption, where you have private citizens making matches and then sending you out privately. Uh, many people may have heard former Vice President Mike Pence on an interview he did recently say, that adoption costs $70,000. That's where you start getting into the $70,000, $80,000 is when you're going through what we would call a facilitator or someone who's doing kind of a matchmaking. Those tend to be the most expensive on domestic. When you look internationally, so adopting from, um, and I'll also say this real quick. If you go backwards, that's the time frame. So typically people, uh, the facilitated match tends to be a little bit quicker. Um, I'd say a year to 18 months, the private uh, attorney, you know, can be anywhere from 18 months to two years. Typically agency ends up being 18 months to three years. And then foster care is just a whole lot harder to tie down a time frame. Internationally, the average cost is about $35,000. And that includes airfare. Uh, that includes accommodations when you're in another country. That includes all the fees you have to pay both to the U.S. and to that country, as well as the social services. So Certainly, there are some that are going to range a little bit higher, and some are going to range a little bit lower, but the average inter-country adoption is about $35,000, and the average time frame is about 18 months. And that's for international? That's for international, yes. Oh, wow. Um, this That sounds overwhelming to me. <laughs> um, it's no wonder a lot of people, seems like they don't talk about it a lot, and they don't think about it a lot. Uh, it, it does seem overwhelming, but there are people with means and, and not only do you have to have the means, you have to have the heart for it and the stamina for it. Um, so, uh, do you have many secular people that are like all over this? Or yeah, is it mainly, I, is it mainly religious people? Cause I'm, I'm thinking of the, the kind of people that would want to do this. It seems like you'd have to have a lot of, of heart for humanity. And I, when I look at secular people, I don't see the heart for humanity. I see a love for big government, but I don't see a love for individual people. I would say probably the way I would say it is you see folks that are, as you would say, more religiously affiliated are going to have a a little bit more again of a of a ministry bent of a yeah. how do we help humanity kind of a bent i think from and again i don't i don't i know i'm giving gross stereo, stereotypes when i say this but i would say that for the most secular are seeing it more as a transactional right so mm -hmm. i i i want a child i need a child i can't have a child biologically it's so transactionally me. i want to adopt I would say, okay. again, and that's very stereotypical, but stereotypically, more of the religiously inclined are, what else can we do? How can we help? How can we make a difference? So mm -hmm. I think it's the difference between someone that wants to, you know, wants to help and someone who wants 
to receive. Yes. Uh, which, which very much, if you look at, even like you said, in a secular monetary government way yeah. as well, that tends to be the difference as well. More religiously, or how can I help? How can I give? More secular, or how can I receive? Or how can I get? Well, your your impression um, matches with secular research on this topic. Um, and just off the top of my head, because I don't have everything on the, at the tip of my fingers, I could give uh, folks a, a, a resource to check that out. Is there's a podcast called? Uh, it's on it's on K through twelve research it's called but it's harvard it's based at harvard um it's called the education exchange mm. and they did a podcast about five years ago i think it was in june of 2018 again this is just the top of my head where he asked there was a guy that came on who did research on how well private school k-12 through versus public school k-12 through prepares students for life not just getting into college because that's where a lot of people just focus on college bad and <laughs> bad bad to just focus on college. but life skills how what their heart is how so the way they measured this was they looked at religious schools first of all catholic and protestant and they looked at uh private schools that have no religion they're just secular mm. right like they're basically a bunch of rich kids, bunch of probably spoiled rich kids, right? And but they have a secular mindset. And then they looked at K through twelve uh, public, and they measured their civic engagement. In other words, the kind of stuff you're talking about, they getting involved mm. uh, with with a heart, like they they put their heart into it. Something that requires sacrifice on their part. Mm. And would you would you uh, be surprised <laughs> but i wasn't surprised at all but the the religious schools were off the charts for these kids mm. private schools that were just for secular kids that were rich i mean they they're not they're sucking wind they're not doing well on on the heart forming mm. hearts mm. and uh, the k through 12 public again same thing they are just not performing well and that's harvard university yeah so uh you know i mean it's not just uh what you call stereotypes it's actually backed by research and um you know that's not to take away anything from individual people that that uh for whatever their background is you know they want to adopt um you know i mean i wouldn't stand in anybody's way for that but but now it's interesting you mentioned the re uh re definition of of the word family the redefinition of the word marriage um and i've uh, we're doing uh, here at the podcast uh, a series on the definition of marriage uh and we are um we're we're concerned about uh how that impacts uh, adoption and 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 stuff like that are there any requirements that you face that would go against your beliefs about what the best ideal family is for a child that you face? Do you have to place, or are you, how much discretion do you have in terms of placing? Yeah. Can you get into that at all? Yeah, for sure. So as an organization, we have, uh, we've made the 
conscientious decision that we aren't going to accept any government funding, so state, local, or federal funding, um, because we we want to work for children and families, not to work for the government. Mm-hmm. And that has definitely taken some, not all, but some scrutiny off of uh, our ability to be able to define family by that Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, the traditional conservative worldview of what a family has been for the last millennial and plus. I mean, it's, it's the dawning of time. Um, however, just, just so people know what the word conservative is, because some people hear the term conservative and they think racist. <laughs> Could you, <laughs> what do you, what do you mean by the word conservative and, and do yeah. you, does that have anything to do with race? And if, no, if, if so, yeah, I want to give you an opportunity to clarify. Yeah, so from a conservative worldview is something that says, let's look at the way it's always been and let's 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 not break what's not broken. Um, let's not break that that what makes what's what's caused human flourishing. Let, let me let me press into that just a little bit because yeah. I know how these secular people think because I'm in California and I, I know exactly what they're thinking right now. They think, didn't you say you were in Alabama? And then you said how it's always been. Now, remember, we're talking about race. So here, what do you mean by that? And what I mean by it's always been, let's let's look at the beginning of, of humanity. Um, it, it takes a woman, takes a man, um, and it takes a conjugal act to have mm-hmm. children. And uh, we, right. we see that that's very much designed. And so it's looking at the design of humanity. How was humanity meant to be? Uh, what makes humanity flourish? What has caused humanity to flourish? And it's typically not all the new things. Um, you know, from a Christian worldview, I look at a book at like Ecclesiastes that says there's nothing new under the sun. And truly, there's there there is nothing new under the sun. All of the the ideas that we're getting from the progressive right now were were Marxist ideas uh, from a ge- you know, generations back. So it's there's nothing new under the sun, but we want to conserve and say, what is really best for human flourishing? How did life begin and start? And how do we conserve those values? How do we conserve the things that were there? Now, again, I can't speak outside of my worldview, but from a Christian heritage, I believe that sin corrupted the world. And that's where we get racism. That's where we get hurt, hateful, bigoted, uh, oppressive type things. It's not from the design. It's from a sinful people who who had who brought in a sinful worldview that brought hatred, that brought scorn, that brought bigotry. But if you go back, the system wasn't broken. What was broken was humanity that that was narcissistic, that was out for self, um, and, and and that became pejoristic. And so let's go back and say, what are the building blocks of humanity? And let's conserve those building blocks. Uh, you know, I, again, was everything perfect in 1776 when the Declaration of Independence was was signed? Was, was everything perfect when the Constitution was made? Well, it wasn't perfect, just like we couldn't make a perfect document today. But we do believe that that was the founding of our of our country, and there was a reason that it was there. And and, and we want to go back to the way of of the founders and what it, what what was the intention on the building blocks of society, um, and 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 even in that, it was very much a man and a woman. And you know, I because you're going to challenge me from California, I've gotten challenged <laughs> before by folks that say, well. You know, when the founders came, women couldn't vote. Um, so are you trying to say that they really thought men and women were equal? 
Um, the, the founding of our country, if you really go and look back into the 1700s, the man was casting a vote for his family. Everything was so familial. It wasn't that women couldn't vote. Women were voting with their husbands. It was done in a family setting. That one, that husband was the designate to go cast the vote for the family because the, the government, the founders said the basic fame framework of our of our republic, the basic framework of our country has got to be found in family. Um, it's got to be found in community and family. And so when I think conservative, it's going back to the family. It's going back to the community. It's going back to the places where human flourishing is found. And what we see nowadays, and, and you've referenced it on our time together as well, is a deconstruction, not just of where we came from, but a deconstruction of the building blocks. What does it mean to be a family? Yeah. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Right. And those are those are foundational for human flourishing. Herbie, I'm going to share my screen, okay? I want you to not be shocked when I'm sharing. Um, can you see it? Yes. Okay. What do you see there? Perez versus Sharp, right? Yep, Perez versus Sharp. And this is a California. Supreme California Supreme Court case in California that overturned interracial ban, marriage ban. And I want to show you, and I'm showing everybody this because it backs up what you're saying. The interracial marriage was illegal in California in 1948. It went all the way to the Supreme Court of California because there was a lady named Andrea Perez who was white. She had a black boyfriend, Sylvester. They used the term Negro at the time. That's their term. That's in the court document. That's the legal term that's used. And they went into the L.A. County recorder's office and asked for a marriage certificate. And they took a look at the couple, the merit, the man and a woman standing in front of them. And they said, we can't do that. We can't give that to you because it's against the law. They sued under the First Amendment because they were Bible thumpers. They believed that God created marriage, man and woman. They fulfill those requirements. They're not closely related. Um, they're of an age required for consent. So there's in the definition of marriage, uh, going all the way back, never included anything about race at all. So this was an extra thing that was added, um, by progressives in California, actually. And they thought they were being progressive, mm -hmm. but the, the, because they were Catholics and they were going by the the classic definition of marriage, which never had any in the, even in the common law in England and going back before that, uh, it was um, never inclusive of race. And I want to show another just really quick because it is quick. There's another case that was called Baker versus Nelson, and it was. Uh, uh, a bit later in Minnesota, there were two guys that wanted to get married and the court had never encountered this before. It was in 1971. The way the court looked at it was they looked at the dictionary and I'm just going to go down to the footnote one. They looked at the dictionary. They looked at Webster's dictionary and they looked at Black's Law Dictionary, which goes all the way back to 1871 during segregation, during racial segregation. I want you to look at Black's Law Dictionary. Black's Law Dictionary 
never included anything about race and marriage. That mm -hmm. that was a lie. That it never included anything about race. There's nothing about race in the definition of marriage in the Bible or any any English dictionary that I've checked. And based on that, they said the word means man and a woman. And those are crucial aspects of the concept, uh, classically understood. And law is takes words seriously and the heritage really seriously. Uh, you can't just make up words whenever, whenever you want. Mm -hmm. And so that was the basis for their for their decision. And um, now I just I I point this out because sometimes there's a a sloppy story that people have bought into that's not really based in fact or history that um that redefining the word marriage or redefining family is somehow part of the same trajectory of progress as as overturning interracial marriage bans but actually the overturning of interracial marriage ban went back like you're saying it went back to the original classical historical definition of marriage mm -hmm. it didn't invent a new one and so I thought it was just thank you for letting me uh, <laughs> do a little lecture on that. Absolutely. Uh, you should see the looks on my students' faces here in California when I point out that here in California, they went back to the biblical definition because they were Catholics and they were saying, hey, look, this is infringing on my liberty impermissibly mm -hmm. to to engage in the Catholic uh, uh what 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 the Catholic believe is is a um, is just as sacred a, a, a right as like taking communion at church, you know, mm. um, or or baptism. I mean, it, it's just as sacred as a thing, and and um, and there can be new life formed as a result of this God designed thing. So. I mean, I know it's really abstract for people and, and, and history is always, seems like we always have just a tenuous view of history. It's easy to get in. My, some of my students have really horrible caricatures of, of the South, which I, I just think are, are just, when I saw, I heard you were from the South, I knew I had to address some of that. And, and just, just, you know, my, my wife is from the South and I'm not from the South, but I'm from the West, uh, Colorado, but but the people I've met in the South and hurt my wife's family, they are some of the uh, most grounded individuals of any race, any race that I've ever met. And um, I, I just, I, I'm so, I'm so appreciative of, of what you're doing and, and the heart. And I, uh, mm. that you, you have here, what do you, what do you need? Like, what do you, what are you looking for? Do you need, you need clients? You need money? What do you need? I'm sure you need something. Yeah, all above. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think first and foremost, you know, we're, our client is, are women and children. And so if you know a woman or a child in need that can be helped with our services, we, we would love to help them. Uh, we need volunteers. Um, we need adoptive families. We need foster families. We need families that are willing to go travel around the world and care for orphans and multiple children um, and will help with their communities. And then we need people that are give. Uh, we are a 501c 
three nonprofit ministry. And, you know, the lion's share of our support comes from people who believe in what we do and the results of what we get and the, the faith with which we do it and want to support organizations like ours. So, yeah, all of the above. Um, if you know, especially if you know a woman in need, a child in need, uh, please reach out to Lifeline at lifelinechild.org. And we would love to come and wrap around that woman and wrap around that child and give them the love and the nurture and support that we can, as well as the services that we have. And Give that website for, again, one more time. It's lifelinechild.org. And if you're looking for us on social media, we're on most of the major social media networks and it's okay. our handle is at Lifeline Child. So if you remember Lifeline Child, you get us on the web and you'll get us on social media. Wow. Uh, to to kind of close out here our time, um, would you mind? I think it's I think I think the power of story is important here, and and we're at the really abstract level here. Can you give us a particular story that has stood out to you over twenty years that is really powerful? There's got to be something there. Yeah, we can, I, something we can have in our minds as we close out. Yeah, so there's several stories that come to mind as you say that, but I, I think in light of what we've talked about even recently in family, uh, in in marriage, but also one that illustrates help. We have a maternity home that we have operated since 1984, and I remember early on in my career here at Lifeline. Uh, I got a call. We were a little bit smaller then. And so whenever anything would happen in the maternity home, I was the one that got called. And, you know, this is going to sound bad, but we had lost one of our residents. They couldn't find her. And hmm. to paint a picture, the maternity home is on a rural setting on 80 acres, uh, schoolhouse, uh, three homes on the property. And the director calls me in a panic and said that they'd been looking for this little girl she was 17 years old. They'd been looking for her for about 30 minutes, had had no luck, searched almost everywhere, um, the barn, the stables, everything. And they were calling me because legally as a 17-year-old, I was her guardian, and hmm. they wanted me to come out and see if I couldn't help. And so I got in my car one night and went on my way out. It was about 45, 50 minutes from my home, and it was just towards the... The, the advent of having cell phones with you at all times and my cell phone rings and it was our director. And he said, we found her. Um, and I think the most profound part of the story was this. It was a little African-American little girl. She was 17 years old. Uh, she had grown up in a home where uh, her mother was, was, was prostituting herself. She'd been taken away. She'd found herself pregnant. And now here she was, 17 years old, living at a maternity home in the middle of nowhere, rural Alabama. And she ran away. And when they found her, she was she was sobbing. And and they said, what happened? Why, why, why did you run away? And she said, I've run away my entire life. She said, never had a daddy. My mama was hardly ever there. My family really didn't even pay attention to me. And she said, I'm crying because for over an hour, I've heard y'all yelling my name out looking for me, and no one's ever come looking for me. Wow. She said, every time I run away, no one comes looking for me, but y'all came looking for me. And she actually ended up choosing adoption, placing her child 
uh, in the arms of another and um, her reasoning and the day she handed her baby over to this family, she said, I chose y'all because when my child, if my child ever runs away or is ever lonely, I wanted someone that would come looking for them. And that's the power of care. When you're caring for someone who's not flesh of your flesh, bone of your bone, that's the power of caring for someone that's vulnerable is saying, Hey, we see you, we know you, Mm-hmm. And we're going to come looking for you. And and I think that mm-hmm. what highlights is it, it wasn't the stuff. I mean, this mm-hmm. little girl had grown in nothing. And and while our maternity yeah. home wasn't the Ritz Carlton, you know, it was more like a day then, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like her, her, her surroundings were better. She had a, a safer place, a bed, you know, three square meals, all those types of things. Those weren't the things she was latching on to. She was latching on to. A mom and a dad, we had house parents that literally came looking for her and and were not going to stop looking for her. And she knew they weren't going to stop looking for her. And wow. that's what gave her the hope to carry on. And so I would just leave that to say, it's not our stuff. Right. It's not our welfare fair programs. It's not our handouts. Um, it's not all the special, unique things that we do. It's our presence that makes the most difference uh, in the lives of the, of the vulnerable and the lives of the needy. Wow. That's it's the care and concern. That's right. The care and concern. That's right. Uh, if you just had, you had to place a, I don't know how it works exactly, but if there were no, um, men and women couples that uh, were available and someone needed to be adopted. Well, I mean, that's that's the case all the time. Would you uh, place it place the the child with a same sex couple? I'm gonna not. I'm gonna I'm gonna plead it this way. Uh, today, there are about thirty thousand domestic adoptions that happen in the United States annually. And there are about 3 million um, heterosexual mom and dad couples looking to adopt. So 3 3 million, 3 million that are looking to adopt. And that's just what we know. So 3 million men and women, but I would say, and they have to be married, right? That's right. So I would say as an organization, we believe in a man and a woman. We believe in a biblical definition of marriage, a conservative definition of family, uh, we wouldn't, and by God's grace, we've never, and I don't foresee a time that we will have to have to make that choice because okay. we've never had a situation where there wasn't a family that was willing to step forward. Now, you don't say that out of any kind of hatred or anything like that. I'm putting words in your mouth, so feel free to, but I'm assuming you, you're you just saying as a matter of, uh, of of principle, as far as what you believe to be the ideal right not that not that a same-sex couple can't do a great job of the care and concern that you just mentioned right because it is about care and concern and i happen to know same-sex couples that do have that care and concern they do um but you're saying just the way people are designed humans are designed by god uh, we function best in a certain way and if that way is available then we probably should take that way instead of um a fallback position. I hate to call it that way, but, but so you're saying 3 million. Now, let me, 
let me just add this uh, question. If it sounds like your your answer would be the same if I posed it this way. If you didn't have a married couple, like a man and a woman, classical definition of marriage, okay? If you didn't have a married couple that were available for a child, but there was an unmarried man and a woman that had that care and concern, but they didn't believe in marriage. They were, um, and I know men and women that live together, they don't believe in marriage. They, they live together for years and they don't believe in marriage. Would you, would you have the same answer? I would, because I believe the reason that marriage is so important and I'll even take it a step further. Okay. The reason that marriage was first legalized in our country was not for the desires of the man and the woman. It was for the protection of children. Hmm. Um, so that a child would have a legally binding um, heir okay. opportunity to be able to be taken care of. We legalize marriage, not because of our Judeo-Christian worldview, we legalize marriage for the protection of children. And so hmm. that's why I would say any redefinition of marriage needs to be seen through the eyes of what's best for children. And I would also tell you the reason I believe that a man and a woman in a committed covenant marriage relationship is best for a child is because that's that is how children flourish with that's and that's how that's how they come to be is through the conjugal act of a committed man and a committed woman and it's made that way because a child needs a mom and a child needs a dad not just out of function but emotionally and mentally and you want to talk about research there's tons of research that shows the 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 emotional spiritual, educational, mental, and physical development of a child that has both the influence of a committed mom and a committed dad. They do better in school. Uh, they do better emotionally. Uh, all of these things, when they have committed parents, they're going to drive them up. When we have a child that is in trauma from a parent that cannot parent them, that is looking at adoption, we yeah. need to give them the very best opportunity to flourish. We need to give them the very best opportunity to give everything that we can to make sure that they flourish and they do well um, and, and they have every opportunity to do well. And we believe that's in a committed, married, heterosexual family. I'm going to read to you from Webster's New Riverside Dictionary Revised Edition, 1996, the definition of family. And I uh, got famine. Okay, here's family. Mm -hmm. A social unit consisting especially of a man and a woman and their offspring. That's the first definition it, it has in, in 1996. Mm. If you look up men and women, adult human male, woman, adult uh, human female. Actually, the primary definition of man is just human being. Just mm -hmm. like, just like. Jefferson used in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, human being. That's a classical definition. Um, so, I mean, your whole business is basically providing backup when that falls apart. That's right. Providing, uh, this is the second best. And so you're already ranking and ordering and stuff like that. So I see your work as 
very sensitive to those kind of metaphysical orderings of, uh, and so it, it's, you know, it seems like you'd have to have a handle on, on how your a, a view about how people are created and what's best for people. And, um, it's no surprise that we're so messed up as a society if we don't have an idea of what clear idea of what that is. 100%. It's the, it's the building blocks of any successful society. And you look anthropo anthropologically, any successful society has, has believed in marriage, family, and children. That's true. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's amazing. Well, Herbie, um, Newell, I appreciate you coming on the Republican professor podcast and talk and, and answering some of my, uh, <laughs> uncomfortable questions, baby. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add that I left off? You know, I, I can't think of anything offhand, but, but I would just say that the things that we're talking about, you know, even as you look at a Republican philosophy, a conservative mantra, mantra, mm -hmm. sure. it's all built on what we've talked about today and, yeah. and adoption and foster care and even advocating for life, um, is, is, is the building blocks of, of, of of the conservative mantra and it's the building blocks of every successful society. And so I would hope and pray that, that people that, that understand this would know that's why abortion, that's why adoption, that's why family is not a political issue. It's ultimately a human thriving issue. Yeah. Um, and, and when we start to, to tear down and deconstruct what it means to be family, um, then we're on a real slippery slope. And just to clarify, if if a man and a woman who are married were an interracial couple, they would be first in line. Correct. We have many interracial couples that 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 we help. I'm glad I asked that question because I would have been like, oh, I for, I didn't ask that question just like super clearly. But I mean, I kind of I know where you're coming from, but I have to ask these questions just because there's so much uh, confusion out there. Um, different messages that that kids are getting in the K through 12 and in college. By the way, how was Samford? Did you like Sanford going to school great. there? I enjoyed going to Samford. And I will say, um, even since I've graduated, I think it's even gotten better. Uh, so oh. my son is 18. And he's actually going to follow in our footsteps and go to Samford in the fall. And uh, I've seen them actually you know, become more staked in their conservative oh. uh, Baptist roots than less staked. So it's, that's it's awesome. Crazy. That is so cool. And just for people that don't know, are there black people that go to Sanford? There are <laughs> Asian, uh, internationals. It um, sounds like Stanford, but it's not Stanford. It's it's Sanford. not Stanford. And because you're that's in probably a comp, yeah. that's a compliment, by the way. It's not. Stanford. Yeah. I, I, there's a, Actually, because you're in California, I'll tell you, and I have this T-shirt, one of the, the best T-shirts at Samford University is it's S-A-M, Sam, not Stan. So, <laughs> so many people confuse it with Stanford. That's awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. And you're with Lifeline Children's Services, lifelinechild.org. We're going to link that on in the uh, notes to the episode. And also your at sign lifeline child on social media that's twitter is that twitter instagram okay. twitter facebook instagram 
Okay. Awesome. We'll link all that stuff. Thanks for coming on, Herbie. Thanks for having us. Okay.